Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And happy secular New Year. Uh, we're, we're heading into it's New Year's Eve, and so we're on the cusp, and it's already the Christian New Year. We're, we're well through Advent, into Christmas tide, and heading into everyone's favorite holiday. Although, actually, I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's probably not many people's, but it's one of maybe the, the most underrated for theological richness, Epiphany. That is yeah. my new claim. Yeah, Epiphany. We, we have a, a church-wide feast on Epiphany. Uh, in the evening, it's fun, champagne toast, uh, rich foods, really good. And then these, these epiphany cakes that we, uh, I'm not sure one of the ladies came up with, where there's a, there is a, a prize in the center of the cake. So if you get the piece of, of, um, pie or ca- cake with the piece of cake with the prize in it, you get a special treat and this sort of thing. So it's always fun. Uh, it'll be next, of course, Sunday, Sunday evening. I love it. I love it. Our first reading is Isaiah 60. Where we have here, we have this injunction, this imperative to arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And then the text gets into darkness covering the earth, and then and the nations are coming into the light, are uh, drawn to light. So it's really interesting because the the first coming here is the coming of the light, and then the coming is sort of the coming of the Lord, and then it, it's it's the Lord and the light draw in the nations. Yeah, the this uh this, this portion of Isaiah of course speaks uh, to the people that are returned from exile, those that are um hoping for the full restoration of Zion, and so this is one of those songs from that. I find it interesting that uh not only does it speak of light and darkness and the the kinds of things the glory of the Lord comes upon you, but it's it's very much um if you will, missions focused or Gentile inclusion is is brought up. The nation shall come to your light. Um, notice that it kind of has an illusion. I guess this is part of why it's read in um, in for Epiphany and for the pairing with Matthew two is um, a, a multitude of camels shall come over you. Camels from Midian and Ephah and from Sheba shall come. They which shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim. The praise of the Lord. It's a little illusion there. Uh, another Gentile point, the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. If you can notice, there's a good example of where the sea is used of the nations, if that's a parallelism, right? The abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. Parallelism. Um, th- that idea that in the restoration of Israel, in the fullest sense, the vision of the prophets of the restoration of Israel is not just Israel being great and mighty and high, but Israel being a blessing to the nations, back to Genesis 12, back to the Abrahamic covenant, the very purpose of Israel ultimately was be to, to be a light 
to the nations. Yeah, and it's interesting because the imper the, the 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 chapter begins with the imperative arise shine, and then it it moves into the kind of indicative. It, you then you will see, mm-hmm. and the, the Gentiles are are the catalyst for them seeing like for them seeing. It's interesting. There's a double coming, coming of God and coming of the nations. And the, the Gentiles being brought in, it almost leads to a renewed faith you know, of of the people of God here, of, of God's right. people, Israel. They're, they're, so it's it's interesting because they, they it, it's always you you see even an anticipation of the way Jesus does subtle sort of reversals and things to keep the the children of God humble. Here here the 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 thing that 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 is the instrument is the symbol of the reign of God of the kingdom are the Gentiles and they're they enable a kind of you know new new found belief right yeah and I think the way I would interpret much of these prophetic you know passages is just um, I, I'm post millennial so I believe you know Christ uh, kingdom came in his first coming that in his ascension that he rules the the reign of Christ the quote millennial kingdom is happening now and and it's an increasing right now he is making creation <laughs> great again well he he's definitely ruling over the kings of the earth right now that's what the bible says and so it, the way that these blessings come about like if you read all these prophecies whether it's you know just Pick your passage from Isaiah forty to, you know, sixty six, or uh, other many other uh, exilic prophets, post exilic prophets. There's always blessing to the nations. Um, now, there's, there's judgment. I don't want to say there's no judgment. There's always judgment too. There's judgment on the enemies of Israel. But then, essentially, the glory passages like this one always have the nations being blessed and coming to Israel and Israel being a light. And that accords very well with my understanding of how the New Testament relates to the Old Testament. When Christ comes, uh, he has to set aside uh, unbelieving Israel. He has to set aside the un, the the disobedient nations. But then as he rules, there is a greater ingathering of all the nations of the earth. And that's exactly what we've seen over the last you know couple of millennia, that there's been this translation. And so, so it, the, the original people of God, Israel, uh, Abraham's specific uh, people, the the seed of of Isaac, become united with, as we'll read in our text in Ephesians two and three, um, two and three, really united with. Now they're co heirs with Gentiles that believe in Jesus. So the bottom line is, as the New Testament would say everywhere, is that it's the people who have faith in Jesus that are the true people of God. It's the people who believe that Jesus is the Christ that are the righteous people that are the uh, those that are the uh, sanctified and set apart people, the justified people, are those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, so that's what Romans, I think, and Galatians says. Not those who keep the law, not those who keep the specific Jewish identity markers. Those markers are themselves um, a preparatory uh, work for bringing about this. What we read right here, you know, that the nation shall come, um, and you, sh- and they shall see, they shall know, the nation shall know, the nation shall know the Lord. Put it in the simplest phrase I can think of. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I think if you look at the Bible bookends, like Genesis one through eleven, it's cosmic, right? Heavens, earth, the, the cosmos, the nations, and then it gets real specific down to one family, Abraham, the call of Abraham, and then the end of the Bible, right? Is 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 the redeeming of the the whole new creation, you know, heavens, earth, the whole cosmos, the nations, and in between is the is the sort of unfolding of that story. And so, even in the middle parts, it's always getting back to the cosmic bookends, right? So, like, 
So here, even in the beginning, there's light and dark imagery getting back to creation and the nations are in focus. So there's no sort of salvation of the individual without thinking of, you know, the wider people of God, the wider, you know, the, the, the sheep that, you know, you know, not of outside of this fold. And there's no healing of humanity without healing of the cosmos. It's always, yeah, it's right. always, it's always personal and cosmic. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the great themes, of course, of Epiphany is missions. And this, this text makes it very clear that there's a, a place for that, you know, in the emphasis of our preaching and teaching during this season, it's an especially good place. We always have, this is our tradition, on the first Sunday uh, of January, which is not always Epiphany, but round Epiphany, the first Sunday basically of Epiphany or Epiphany, um, we have the Gideon representative come. And he's a, like a, I think he's a Mennonite guy from Lancaster County, and he comes, and his name is uh, Moses King, and he comes every, you know, every year at that time, and he does you know what the Gideons do? They always tell these stories of how people found a Bible. Does he take <laughs> the champagne toast at the feast? He doesn't come to the feast. I don't know about that. Oh, okay. I, we don't want to right. press him See, too far on that one. Yeah, but, and I, but, I, I want to echo that missionary theme too. There's this great quote I think by Jurgen Moltmann. I've heard it. There's this the idea that like the Church of God doesn't have a mission in the world. The God of mission has a church in the world, and God is the primary missionary, right? It's it's the work, and so you really see that in this text. God comes and, and brings the nations and the Israel, Israel witnesses like what God does. And so often I think the church and mission is ought to be prepared to see what God's already doing to prepare the way. Yeah, I agree. God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born upon this day. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. On to Ephesians. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is saying the mystery of the gospel is revealed here, that he, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of the Gentiles, uh, it is saying that I've stewarded this mystery uh, that was made known to Paul by revelation, that they're going to be, they're engrafted in to the promises of the God of Israel and the healing of the cosmos through Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. I feel like when we use the word mystery today, in religious circles, it's often meant to be a paradox. Outside, outside of religious circles, it's often something we can't figure out or can't solve. Inside in Christian circles, it's often used more positively, like the mystery of the incarnation of the Trinity. But Paul is using it a little differently here. For him, it's something that has been going on and is now revealed. So I feel like that, that term mystery, is Paul uses it a little differently than how we think of it being used in common parlance. You know? Yeah, I think Yeah, I think he uses it as, as a, an unknown, undisclosed matter that now has been disclosed and proclaimed. Although, you know, I grew, grew up around dispensationalist um, teachers, and they wanted to say that the church was the mystery period. The, the church was not known at all in terms of Old Testament prophecy. Um, that's one of the strong claims that, that they make more, uh, I guess, the more stricter you are on that and so forth. That seems to me to be an idiotic point of view i mean the, the, the only <laughs> thing i like about dispensationalism is the charts <laughs> I, like, I think those are fun yeah, yeah they're good but I, I i would just say about that like 
you can't press the idea of it being undisclosed so much that you can't have predictive prophecy because that's the whole point. We were just talking about, you know, Isaiah 60, um, Psalm 72. I mean, that these things all speak of the church, of course. So I think that what Paul has in mind here more specifically and more in a more detailed way, and I, I would, I think I can make this case very exegetically is he is saying the the very specific kind of mystery that was not understood was how the Gentiles would become blessed through Abraham's seed and exactly in what way they would be uh, become benefactors of the blessings to Israel. And Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's what he says. He says they're fellow members and they're fellow partakers with Israel. They will receive the uh, with-believing Jews— the inheritance of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, that is no small thing to think that they're going to receive the same inheritance as Israel is. Yeah. That is yeah. a huge thing. Now, I, I, it's hard for us in the modern church to bridge the gap to understand that. Yeah. But if you've done any studies in the New Testament and the, the relationship of Jews and Gentiles and the different parties, Pharisees and Sadducees and all the, and and even just Paul, this is a huge thing. And it, how do we apply it in the church? I think if you understand it theologically, it's really not s- significant to us because we're not really dealing with that challenge. Between it means the Fox News people will ha- get just as much blessing as the MSNBC yeah. people. No, but it is. I think of the yeah. political tribalism. Yeah, yeah. but now yeah, tri- I think I think, I think yeah, yeah, tribalism the tribal, is one way tribal. to do it. Tribalism is one way to do it. Obviously, racism is one way to do it. Um, but but also just within. Interpersonal relationships is one way to do it. Like I w- I'll make the appeal like this. I'll say, look beside you in the pew. Yeah. <laughs> do you love this person? Do you accept this person? Because that's what Christ came so that we could be a body together and accept one another. Yeah. And, and also in response to your dispensational observation, and I think also this sort of gets at what Paul's saying here. It, all, the, say, all you need to say to the dispensational friends is, hey, take a look at Aristotle's Poetics. Because, you know, Aristotle thinks that a great drama, like great, a great story, that, that what happens, like, climactically, you know, as it unfolds, like, the, the, the great action is such that you couldn't see it coming. And yet, once it comes, you're like, oh, it couldn't have happened any other way. And you think of, like, serial dramas or films you don't like, it's because at key points, either it's predictable, I know what's going to happen, or it's not predictable, but it's so far flung and doesn't really knit with the rest of the story, which I think what you're saying with dispensationalism here, it's like, okay, you, you, you do have novelty, but your novelty really doesn't fit with the rest of the story. But I think what Paul, what, what you can see in the Old Testament, you even have Jews proselytizing Gentiles, but what, what was not known was that really the, the reuniting of these two people, this fundamentally socio, fundamental socio-theological distinction, would not be bridged by Gentiles becoming Jews, right? But by Gentiles and Jews both becoming new creatures in Christ, right? Exactly, and and that's and that is a, as I said, that's a very important uh, teaching. The and light that's come in the world is making one new humanity. You know, we are we are all united. That is a tremendous uh, truth.
on to the gospel reading, which is the week, I guess we could call it the, the, the epiphany reading proper. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Matthew, the God from the gospel of Matthew, the second chapter, right? The, sto- the story of the Magi coming yes. to Jesus. And it's, it, do you know that, well, historically, of course, there's not really any evidence for the numeric uh, number. I mean, it doesn't really say that there were three Magi, but I did learn that in the eighth century, in the eighth century, Saint Bede the Venerable mm-hmm. uh, supplied the names Melchior, Gas- Gaspar, and Balthazar. Yes, and then some centuries after this, Empress Helena made her own contribution to this mythology by claiming to have had a vision which led her to the burial site of these kings, and she had the remains exhumed and the ostensible skulls of the three kings remain on display in Cologne, Germany. So for all you Jeopardy... It's good enough for Helena, people, it's good enough for me. It's good enough, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. But since you, I, I would say, before we get, get into it too, I would just commend, if if our listeners haven't read it, it uh, Benedict XVI, the former Pope, Pope Emeritus, has a, a short monograph on the infancy narratives, which is fantastic, and... His section, his treatment of the Magi is absolutely, it's its wonderful. It's great. I can't say enough good about it. Well, you know, um, there's a great book by Umberto Eco called Baudolino. It's a, it's a story. It's, a, it's set in the medieval times, and it just basically wraps up all of the legends of Christian uh, medievalism together, including the, the kings, the, the heads of John the Baptist, the um, the Holy Grail, you know, all this stuff in a very humorous story. It's it's very entertaining. Um, it's it, it's very interesting. Of course, we yeah we're told we're not told how many um, we're not told that they're kings. We're not told how many. We're told that they're magi. And uh, most uh, the 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 reason why I should say that the association of three has come is because three from the text at least is because there are three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and it is um, John Henry Hopkins, who in 1862 wrote the hymn, We Three Kings. He, I think, has an interesting uh, symbolic interpretation of those gifts. He you know, speaks of gold as a king. Uh, this, this is to demonstrate his association with kingliness, which I think is a reasonable point to make. Um, frankincense is an offering to a god, so it's a deity. Incense owns a deity nigh, says to him. But then uh, the myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. So it's a foreshadowing of his death. That's that's the symbolism of the great hymn. And I think uh, it's it's very fitting. I think it's a very fitting thing, even though, you know, if you want to be sort of a theological policeman about it, it's not three kings and it's uh, – you know, it's just magi, and we don't really know much about them. Although a lot of a lot of scholars think they do know that they are Zoroastrian priests. I don't think you can demonstrate that. Uh, I was just reading one of the Revised Common Lectionary commenters today, and they were saying these were Zoroastrian priests. We're not told that in the text, and there could be a lot of folks from the East um, that have different things. Think, of- yeah, it's interesting. Benedict says this about this. He has a long several pages where he talks about these are probably, you know people that are into astrology and philosophy and religion. And and he says this is in summary, which is great, although I want to say I, I'm, it might not get at the thrust of, of what I think they represent, but I like it. From all that has been said, we can obtain some sense of the outlook and the knowledge that prompted these men to set off in search of the newborn king of the Jews. We could well say that they represent the religions moving toward Christ 
as well as self, the self-transcendence of science toward him. In a way, they are successors of Abraham, who set off on a journey in response to God's call. In another way, they are successors of Socrates and his habit of questioning above and beyond conventional religion toward the higher truth. In this sense, these figures are forerunners, preparers of the way, seekers after truth such as we find in every age. I think that's beautiful, and there's something about it I like, but at the same time, this is, you know, they are soothsayers. I mean, they're, they're people that... They, are, they would immediately be recognized, I think, to Matthew's audience as people that were as out of place as the Gentiles and the sort of women of alleged ill repute in Matthew's genealogy. I mean, Matthew is peppering the opening of the gospel with these outsiders, the people, the shepherds, the, you know, these people that are not the insiders who have front row seats to the breaking in of God's glory in the flesh. And so I think that, that, Whatever he's, whatever we can say about them, that Christ child is attracting these people that that look more like Shirley MacLaine or something, probably to the original hearers than than to something as like the child, the student of Socrates as Benedict makes them. Although there may be some truth in that and that too, but you know, it's it's like the Christ child who attracts these odd soothsayer types to his cradle is going to have the same magnetic attracting effect with Samaritan adulterers and prostitutes and tax collectors and despised the Gentiles and ostracized lepers. Like already we're seeing the child drawing people together, drawing people in that are, are outsiders. Well, I don't know that it's necessary to make a dichotomy between there being high or there being low. Um, you know, but, but I would say just from my surface reading of the text that Matthew's not representing them as low. He's not representing them as you know, what we would consider sort of, uh, you know, some sort of shysters. I mean, he's representing them as kind of an official envoy. They come, they travel with gifts. They have right, all these. Right, yeah. right. So, yeah, no, yeah. But they're outsiders. They'd clearly yeah, they're be, you're right. You could, and you could be a high outsider, like the, like yeah. you think of the, the gen, you think of the Gentile who says, heal my, heal my boy, you know, heal that my servant. You know who was who was respected among the Jews, right? Like, I mean, there are yeah, there are high, there are outsiders that are noble, outsiders that are morally uh, more offensive, but they're they're outsiders nonetheless. And I think they these people are uh, people's um, religious spidey sense might their original readers might go up because of so much that they practice is sort of at least looked at with you know this with a. a, a Askance, kind of uh, in the Old Testament. Yeah, I th- I think that there's that's probably there. I think that's probably in the original context. I think people were reading it, but, but I, I think that one of the important contrasts to get here, and this is a contrast that I think we'll preach, is you have, of course, the contrast between these people coming from the east who are, I think, coming as some kind of you know official envoy, and that are coming prepared to, you know, worship this person as king. And you have actually the proxy king of Israel, Herod. Right, Herod, right, right. So there's right, this huge <laughs> contrast between these yeah, two yeah. groups. Now, I think one of the uh, fascinating illustrations that I think comes uh, for that is is a, a song, a, an in, a, a version of a song by Simon Garfunkel, that was uh, put out in 1966. It's it's a song. It's on the it's on the album. Many people will know. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. And it's called Seven O'clock News Slash Silent Night. And so what it begins is this beautiful duet singing Silent Night. You know, with this high, nice, high sound of you know Art Garfunkel, and then 
as you begin to hear something in the background, it gets louder and louder and louder. It's kind of like a gnat buzzing. And then as you, as it gets just loud enough to really understand what it is, you realize it's a newscast. And then what you hear is statements like this. So again, silent light is playing. They're singing it to a piano. And then this news gets louder and louder and it's U.S. involvement in Vietnam, poverty, race, racial unrest, riots, homelessness, drug overdose, serial killers, Martin Luther King Jr., Richard Nixon. And by the end, Silent Night is over. It's overwhelmed with the real world's troubles. Scott Jose, uh, who's the chap- chaplain, I think, uh, at Calvin College, he's actually been a guest on this podcast. But he, in his commentary on this passage, he writes this, which I think is just fantastic. He says, during the Advent and the Christmas season, it's easy to look at manger scenes and creches of all kinds and find them lovely and maybe even moving. It's so easy to view that hodgepodge of shepherds, magi, animals, new parents, angels, and the infant in the middle of it all and not bat an eye at the spectacle of all those wildly diverse people and creatures dwelling under one little roof. But then the season ends, and by the time Epiphany rolls around, the manger scenes have been packed away for another year. Epiphany, however, returns us to the reality of the church as a place Likewise filled with a motley hodgepodge of all, all hodgepodge of all kinds of different people, all standing together around the Christ under one roof and all called together by the one singular grace of God. How challenging it is, however, to view the real church with its real mishmash of divergent people with the same unalloyed joy we so often capture during Christmas. Perhaps sustaining that joy of grace is one of Epiphany's challenges. Great, great, uh, great words to, you know, to end on and reflect on. Greg, thanks for doing this again and blessings as you preach on Epiphany. Thank you. And give my greetings to the Gideon guy. (laughs) We will. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today and thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.